Uh, oh, this will come on in a second. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, if you're here for the first time today, you might be wondering, wow, this is an intense church. Uh, and this is a, it is a pretty intense passage, so I'm going to pray for us in a second. But we've been uh, working our way through the book of Revelation, uh, particularly from uh, this year. Last year we did uh, chapters 1 to 3. This year we've been doing chapter 4 through to the end. So next week's our last week in Revelation. Uh, and so here today we come to a particularly, I guess, intense passage uh, and maybe a, a pretty heavy-going passage. Uh, hopefully uh, it will also uh, seem incredibly relevant and applicable to our lives. So let me pray for us in light of that. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, this word uh, uh, can be confusing. Uh, there can be much disagreement and debate about this passage. Uh, it can seem like uh, a, a little bit alien and uh, irrelevant for our lives. Uh, please, God... Uh, Speak to us this day, make your word clear to us, help me to make your word clear. Uh, please give us uh, sharpness, attentiveness, uh, uh, humility in our minds, that we might hear your word uh, rightly, that we might trust it, uh, and that we might be changed by it for the glory of Christ. Amen. Uh, so as I was uh, preparing this week, I was reminded of a poem that I, I saw kind of posted on social media a little while ago. It's uh, by a guy named uh, Taylor Marley. He's based in New York, I think. Uh, and the poem is called uh, Totally Like Whatever You Know. Right, That's a pretty long title, but not overly snappy, but I right, totally like whatever you know. Uh, so I'm going to try to recite the, the poem a, a bit like he's written it. So here it goes. It goes for a little while, but... Uh, he says, in case you hadn't realised, it has somehow become uncool to sound like you know what you're talking about or believe strongly in what you're like saying. Invisible question marks and parenthetical you knows and you know what I'm saying have been attaching themselves to the ends of our sentences, even when those sentences aren't like questions. Declarative sentences, so-called, because they used to like declare things uh, to be true, okay, as opposed to other things uh, that are like totally, you know, not true, uh, they've been infected by a tragically cool and totally hip interrogative tone. As if I'm saying, don't think I'm a nerd just because I've like noticed this, okay, I have nothing personally invested in my own opinions, I'm just inviting you to jump on the bandwagon of my own uncertainty. What has happened to our conviction? What are the uh, where are the limbs out on which we once walked? Have they been like chopped down with the rest of the rainforest, you know? Or do we have like nothing to say? Has society just become so filled with these conflicting feelings of uh, that we've just gotten to the point where we're the most aggressively inarticulate generation to come along since, you know, a really long time? Right? Totally like whatever you know. That's the name of it. You can look it up later on. But I actually think that poem says a fair bit about our culture's approach to lots of different things, even things that really matter. Uh, today, uh, you, you heard the passage read, today we're looking at really big things. Really big things. The end of the world, the end of our lives, God's judgment, heaven, hell. Massive topics. And by and large, I think we feel uncomfortable speaking with any kind of conviction or certainty or, or boldness about these kind of topics. Or we might apologetically say, well, maybe like, you know, God might judge some people someday. Maybe there might like, you know, be some kind of place where it's not so good. Some people call it hell. I don't know. Like, uh, we shy away from speaking about these things, perhaps even believing these things with any kind of certainty. And if we're not careful, that 
kind of can, can eat away at our faith, right? Because these are things that God's word has been really clear about. God wants us to be certain of these things. On the other hand, there are other things in God's word that aren't so certain. The Bible is not so clear on. And today's passage is really a mishmash of both of those things. On the one hand, today's passage is one of the most disputed passages in the whole Bible. It's full of uncertainty. On the other hand, there are truths in this passage that God wants us to be absolutely certain of. Uh, it's pretty clear, uh, if you have a look at the passage, it's pretty clear that the passage is all about this thousand years, right? And uh, kind of in Christianese circles, they sometimes call that, often call that, the millennium. And not that, you know, not that rocket science, right? Thousand years, millennium, right? So uh, the millennium. Uh, and it's clear, have a look at it. I'm saying it's the focus because in verses 2 to 7, that's six verses, John refers to this thousand year period six times. Six times in six verses. So obviously it's on John's mind. And the reality is throughout history, uh, there's been debate and disagreement, uh, often very passionately, uh, about this millennium. Uh, So what I want to do is start with uh, two things that we have to remember. Now, some of you may not have thought about this ever. Some of you might be very passionate about a particular view of the millennium. Uh, 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 Sorry, these are two things we have to remember. Uh, The first thing we have to remember is that it's okay to disagree about the millennium. Yeah, as I say, you might not even care at all, right? But it's okay to disagree. There are lots of things in the Bible God's been very clear about, right? Non-negotiable truths, truths that uh, we might actually say, uh, if you if you want to be a Christian, you, you have to believe this, right? That Jesus is God, that Jesus became flesh, that he died for our sins, that he was raised from the dead, that he's going to return. Right? These, are, these are non-negotiable truths uh, that you have to believe. God's word has been crystal clear about them. Uh, Of course, there are other things in the Bible that are less clear. Things that uh, Christians who are serious about understanding God's word, engaging with it faithfully, uh, they're very serious about it, and yet they disagree on it. And throughout history, this millennium has been one of those things. So so real giants of the Christian faith throughout history, um, St. Augustine, Jonathan Edwards, uh, Charles Spurgeon, Don Carson, John Piper, uh, all, all these kind of guys that they seriously study God's word and yet they disagree on what this passage teaches. Uh, so I think that means we, we have to approach this passage with a fair bit of humility. Well, we have to approach it with humility knowing that two people who are really serious about engaging with God's word uh, could look at this passage and come to quite different conclusions. Well, that, that's okay. It's okay to disagree about the millennium, your interpretation of this. What's not okay is to divide over the millennium. It's okay to disagree. It's not okay to divide, I don't think. Uh, There are some people, uh, maybe not many amongst us, I don't know, Uh, but there are some people who want to make this whole question of the millennium kind of the litmus test of whether you're a genuine Christian, Or, or at least whether they can be a part of the same church as you. And by and large, I think that's wrong. I think it's dividing God's church over something that's not central to our faith. I'm not saying it's never appropriate to leave a church over what I might call a secondary issue. It might be. It might be that there's a secondary doctrine issue or a practice issue or some kind of socioeconomic position. I'm not saying it's never appropriate to leave a church on those kind of grounds, but we have to be pretty careful about it. God calls us to maintain the unity of the church. It dishonors God when we divide the church over secondary issues. 
So there you go. Two things to remember. It's okay to disagree about the uh, millennium, but it's not okay to divide over the millennium. Two things. Uh, let, with that in mind, let me give you three things that we might disagree on. This will give you some idea of why there's so much uncertainty in looking at this passage. Right? The first thing we might disagree on uh, is exactly when this thousand years, this, there's this reign of a thousand years, when is it going to happen? Now, some people uh, look at this passage and they think it's a no-brainer. Oh, you remember last week we saw in Revelation 19, Jesus returns, uh, you turn the page, Revelation 20, uh, Satan is bound, Christians are reigning with Christ for a thousand years, uh, and uh, Satan is destroyed in the next part of the passage. So clearly this millennium is going to happen after Christ returns. Right? Revelation 20 comes after Revelation 19. Uh, of course, the big assumption in that is that Revelation is arranged in chronological order. Right, which uh, me and, and many other people would say it's not. It's arranged in these repeated cycles, not, not strictly chronologically. Right, so it's no surprise that at least some of the stuff here in Revelation 20 uh, we've already seen in the book of Revelation. Right, it's already been described, for example, in Revelation 16. So if you look in Revelation 20 verse 8, uh, it says that Satan is going to go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth uh, to gather them for, to battle against God. Right, but that's not new. That's not new content. Right? In, in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, uh, you can flick back if you've got a Bible. Chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, John said, uh, Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. Uh, they are demonic spirits that perform signs. And what do they do? They go out to the kings of the whole world, think four corners of the earth, uh, to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Now, it seems to me that the battle in Revelation 20 is the same battle as Revelation 16. This great battle on the day of the Lord, Armageddon. Right? Satan has deceived the nations. The rulers of the nations have gathered together to battle it against God. Revelation 16 and Revelation 20 seem to be covering the same content, which perhaps proves that Revelation is arranged in cycles rather than strictly uh, chronologically. Now, that, that maybe doesn't kind of compute what, what difference does that make, uh, but it, really it's your answer to that question, chronological or cyclical, which determines when you think this millennium, this thousand years is going to happen. Uh, there are really three positions on that. Right, I'm going to use some big words, but it's hard to, just to talk about this passage without using some big words. All right, three words. Uh, there are those who would say uh, they're premillennialists. Right, they say this millennium is in the future, uh, towards the end of the world, and Jesus is going to return before the millennium, right? Pre, the millennium. We get pre, right? So, uh, so he's, Jesus is going to return before the millennium. And then there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christians on earth, right? No, no, right? So a thousand years and then the end of the world will come, right? So that, that's premillennialism. Come to more of that in a second. Then there's post-millennium. Uh, they think that millennium also is in the future, uh, but Jesus is going to return after the millennium, right? Post the millennium. And then there's what you might call amillennius, that's me, uh, who would say that the millennium's not in the future, the millennium is happening right now. Right? We're, we're living in the millennium. You didn't know that, right? Maybe you can find that out tonight, right? We're living in the millennium, and Jesus is going to return at the end of the millennium. Now, that's all just to say that there's potential for disagreement about when this millennium's going to happen. Right, that's just one, uh, one area of uncertainty in this passage. Uh, there's another area of uncertainty, that is, how long is the millennium? 
Now, once again, you look at the passage, you think that's a no-brainer. It says right there in the text, right? 1,000 years. But of course, throughout Revelation, John has used numbers symbolically a whole lot. In chapter 7, he talked about the 144,000. I don't think anyone reads that passage and genuinely thinks that there's only going to be 144,000 Christians. But we get that that's a symbolic number, a symbol of the fullness of God's people. Uh, So you've got this whole question. Likewise, I think this thousand years is symbolic, a symbol of the whole period between Christ's first coming and his second coming, the, the church age, if you like. But anyway, you've got the question uh, of when, you've got the question of how long, uh, and you've also got the question of kind of what and where. I alluded to this before, but uh, if you look at the opening verses of Revelation 20, uh, they speak about Christians being raised with Christ, right? They're references to these resurrections, uh, and reigning with Christ. Uh, but that raises all these questions, right? Is this, uh, what sort of resurrection is this, and where does this reigning happen? Well, these are the two big questions, really. Is it a physical resurrection so that Christians can reign with Christ here on earth, right in the future? That's kind of a premillennial type idea. Or is it a spiritual resurrection so Christians can reign with Christ in heaven now? The point of this is just to say that there's lots of confusion in this passage. Lots of uncertainties, lots of questions. It's like someone's thrown the pieces of a puzzle up into the air And people are trying to put it together in all these different ways. People who are serious about studying God's word, they they put the puzzles together, uh, the pieces of the puzzle together differently. Uh, So what I want to do now, uh, in uh, in that kind of spirit of humility uh, I spoke about, uh, is explain how I put the pieces together. How do I put the pieces together? I want to give you three things that uh, you can see there in the outline, three things I think we can know for certain. Uh, So here's the first thing. Uh, The first thing I think we can know for certain is that Christ has come once. We definitely know that. But Christ has come once and Satan is bound. Christ has come once and Satan is bound. Look look in verse 2. There's this reference to Satan being bound up, right? Uh, that's only, that language of Satan being bound uh, is only used by one other person in the New Testament. It's a pretty reliable source, though. Uh, it's Jesus, right? One other person in the New Testament uses that language. It's Jesus. Uh, if you want to flick back, you can. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, there's a story there in Matthew 12 where Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. Uh, you might remember the situation. He, he casts out these demons, and people accuse him of doing that by the power of Satan. And Jesus looks at the crowds and he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's a good question. Jesus often answers a question with a question, right? Uh, And then in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Matthew 12, verse 28, Jesus says, "Uh, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, which it is, that's what he's saying, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 29, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties him up, binds him, right? He binds the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Jesus knows that Satan, right? This is the the dragon in Revelation 20. Satan, Jesus knows, is powerful. You see there, Jesus refers to him as a strong man. He says Satan's a strong man, he's got his own house, his own possessions, he's, he's got his own sphere of dominion. Satan is powerful, but Jesus is more powerful, he says. 
In fact, in casting out demons in his ministry, Jesus is showing that he has already entered Satan's house, bound him up, and he started plundering his possessions. He's starting to liberate people who are under the rule, the, the oppressive rule of Satan. You see, Christ has already come and he's already bound Satan. It started in his life. And it continues to his death, right? Colossians 2 verse 15 uh, says that in his death on the cross, Christ disarmed the powers and authorities. Right? That's demonic powers. Right? He disarmed them, made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. Right? Christ has already come. He's already bound and disarmed and triumphed over Satan. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, By his death Christ broke the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. But I, I, I don't want us to be confused about this. I think we can know this for certain, that Christ has come once and Satan is bound. We, we must read John's words here at the end of the New Testament in light of Jesus' words at the start of the New Testament. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Christ has already bound Satan. So what's, what have we got in the opening verses of Revelation 20? It's a symbolic depiction of that. It's a symbolic depiction of, of, of what Christ achieved at the cross. Much like in Revelation 12. You remember that uh, Revelation 12, the, the, the virgin was there with child. You can read the opening verses of Revelation 12. Groaning in the pains of labor. And the child is born and, and snatched up to heaven. That's a kind of 12, chapter 12, verse 5. A summary of Christ's life, death, and resurrection and ascension. He's seated with God. Uh, snatched up to the throne of God. And because of that, Satan is cast out of heaven. Right? Christ has defeated Satan. He has come once in his life, death, and resurrection. Satan is bound. That's the first thing I think we can know for certain, which leads to the second thing, which is that we're living in this thousand-year period, this millennium now. And now I know that leads to a whole lot of questions, perhaps two in particular, which I'll uh, address. Uh, the, the first question uh, is that uh, as you look at the world today, Right, full of all sorts of evil, there's suffering, there's injustice. Uh, how can we possibly believe that Satan is bound? Right, how can we believe that? And of course, there's no doubt. I, I'm not debating that. Our world is full of suffering and evil. And I'm certainly not denying that Satan is the source of much of that suffering and evil. Well, I guess what I am saying is that our world today is nowhere near as bad as it could be. It's nowhere near as bad because Satan is bound. He's restricted. He's, he's limited in what, he's got, what he can do. God's got him on a short leash, so to speak. And maybe the confusion comes because of verse 3, chapter uh, Revelation 20, verse 3. Uh, Satan's thrown into an abyss, sealed up for a thousand years. I think we read that and we assume that it means that Satan's kind of completely gone, that he's inactive. But that's not the case. Right? He's just bound. Right? He's not destroyed until later in the chapter. That's the final destruction. Here, he's limited. He's restricted in particular ways. Notice why it is that he's bound. At the end of verse 3, the purpose of his binding is to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. It's important to understand this. Satan's ultimate weapon is not disease or war or suffering or injustice in the world. His ultimate weapon is deception. 
His ultimate weapon is deceiving the nations, is, is blinding people to the truth of the gospel. That's his big weapon. And so when we consider the question, has Satan been bound, we shouldn't ask ourselves primarily, is there still evil and suffering in the world? We should ask ourselves, are people responding to the truth of the gospel in a way that they didn't before Christ? Has the, have the nations been opened up to the gospel? I think the answer is yes, isn't it? Floods of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, open to the truth of the gospel for the very first time. Because Satan has been bound. And that's why after Christ said he'd bound Satan in Matthew 12, what did he say in Matthew 28? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Christ has bound Satan through his life, death and resurrection. His deceptive power over the nations has been restrained. It's limited. So Jesus says, go to the nations. Go to the nations knowing that they'll finally respond to the truth of the gospel. They'll embrace it. And that's what we've seen throughout history. The growth of the church. That's the primary evidence of Satan's binding. The growth of the church. Disciples from all nations. So that's the first question. I think we're living in the millennium now, but, but how can we possibly believe that Satan has been bound? That's the first question. The, the, the second question uh, comes from verses 4 and 5. I believe verses 4 and 5. Uh, it says, uh, if we're in the millennium now, how is it that we as Christians uh, can be seated on thrones and reigning with Christ? Because if you read that, that's what it seems like. The, this thousand-year period comes, and, and it's during that period that Christians are seated on thrones and reigning with Christ. So I've got two answers for that. The first is true, biblically, but I'll concede that it comes less out of this particular passage. So uh, true, but less out of this particular passage. And that is that uh, Christians who are alive now, that's us, uh, we reign with Christ on earth right now. We reign with Christ. Uh, So Romans 8, verse 37. Romans 8, verse 37. Paul says... Uh, not remember this. He says not that we will be conquerors in the future, but that we are conquerors now through Christ who loved us. Oh, we are conquerors. Oh, the point is that Christ could not conquer. Uh, uh, that Satan could not conquer Christ. Right? He's been snatched up to glory in heaven, uh, so he can't conquer Christ's church can't conquer us right in particular he can't conquer our efforts to build Christ's church so you remember in Matthew 16 in Matthew 16 Jesus says to Peter I'll tell you I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it will not conquer it right as we participate in the spread of the gospel the building of Christ's church we can be assured that in Christ we are conquerors Right, we, will overcome, we won't be overcome by anything that the gates of Hades throws our way. Christ will build his church through the preaching of the gospel to the nations. So spiritually speaking, as Christians, we already reign with Christ. We're conquerors with Christ. So Christians who are alive now, that's us, we reign with Christ on earth now, spiritually. And Christians who have died now reign with Christ in heaven. Uh, that this is the Christians in verse 4. Right? If you look at the, the Christians in verse 4, they're, they're men and women uh, who've been beheaded for their faith. 
are people who uh, persevered in worshipping Christ, not giving in to worshipping the beast or, or any, any kind of human ruler that is uh, kind of presenting themselves as a saviour or lord, right? They, they've refused to give in, they've persevered in being Christians and now they reign with Christ in heaven. And look, they reign with Christ because in verse 5 they've experienced this first resurrection. Well, This first resurrection I take to be the resurrection of their souls. I think that in part because of Revelation chapter 6. If you've got your Bible, you can flip back to Revelation 6. But Revelation 6 verse 9 uh, John, it's in the middle of the, uh, the vision of the seven seals. Uh, and in verse 9, John uh, saw the fifth seal being opened. He said, when Christ opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. You see the parallel to Revelation 20? You've got people uh, who are in heaven reigning with Christ uh, they're, they're there because they've been slain. In chapter 20, they've been beheaded. Uh, they're there, they've been slain or beheaded uh, because of their obedience to the word of God, their, their testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The people on these thrones in verse 4 uh, and verses 4 and 5 are Christians who've been slain for their faith. And now they reign with Christ in heaven. They've been raised up to be with him and they're waiting for the, the resurrection of their physical bodies at the end of the age, you see. We get to that later on in this chapter. So that's two things I think we can know for certain. Right? Christ has come once and Satan is bound. And secondly, we're living in this millennium right now. Happy for you to disagree. Uh, third thing, uh, I think most of us would agree on this one, which is that Christ is going to come again and destroy Satan. Uh, so look in, in verse 3, uh, towards the end of this thousand year period, right? I'm saying this is the whole period between Christ's first and second coming, Towards the end of this period, uh, Satan will be let loose, we're told. There'll be a short period of uh, really intense persecution for God's people. Uh, You might remember, I'm giving you lots of passages in Matthew tonight, right? You might remember in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus sort of mentioned this. Matthew 24, verse 21, he said, uh, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had, been, uh, had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Right? This is Jesus talking about this intense, uh, short period of suffering uh, right before the end of the age, right before he returns. And he's assuring his disciples, he's assuring us that as God's elect, his chosen people will be safe and secure. Right? Don't, don't be afraid. And after this period of suffering, Christ will return to destroy Satan. That's verses 9 and 10. Finally destroy, right? not place on a leash in a, in a big hole, an abyss, but finally utterly obliterate Satan. Verse 9, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, uh, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's the kings who have uh, been kind of deceived by Satan. And verse 10, and then the devil who deceived them uh, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. We saw that last week. Uh, They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So so we can know this for certain. Christ will come back and fully and finally uh, obliterate Satan. Three things I think we can know for certain. 
Uh, but even if you disagree with me on those things or some of the details of those things, I think there are at least five things from this passage that we can all know for certain. We can all unite around and agree on. These are much quicker. Uh, the first of them is that we can be absolutely certain that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And this has been one of the big themes in the book of Revelation, hasn't it? God, uh, remember, Revelation uh, chapters 1 to 3, the seven churches, that's kind of a prelude uh, to chapters 4 to 21. And, and that section starts with God sovereignly sitting on his throne, looking out over his world, Revelation 4. And so the whole book of Revelation is from that vantage point. God, the sovereign God sitting on his throne. Over and over again, we've been told that no matter what's going on in the world, in our lives, God is in control. God is completely in control. God is sovereign. A second, Satan uh, is subordinate to God. Uh, so you might not agree with my particular interpretation of these verses at the start of Revelation 20, uh, of Satan being bound. So that's okay. But I think we can all agree that Satan does not have free reign in the world. Right? Satan is only allowed to do, uh, he can only do what God allows him to do. God is sovereign. It's not like uh, Christianity is not dualism. Well, we don't have two equal powers fighting it out. No, no, no. God is sovereign and he dictates what Satan's allowed to do. Right? God is sovereign. Uh, Satan is subordinate uh, and the gospel will advance. We can know that for sure. right? Matthew 24, uh, near the, the verses I quoted earlier, uh, this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus says, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Right? This is a, a guarantee from Jesus. The gospel will advance, will be proclaimed in all nations, will advance to all nations, because when Jesus died on the cross, Revelation 5, verse 9, he purchased people from every nation, every tribe and language and tongue. So the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations, and then the end will come. Once Christ is getting the worship that he deserves from all nations. We can agree on this. The gospel will advance. And when the gospel advances to all nations, Christ will return. That's the fourth thing we can agree on. We've already talked about that. And finally, fifth, uh, we can agree that when Christ returns, he'll judge everyone. Uh, that's very clear in verses 11 to 15, isn't it? This is the day, the, the, the great judgment day, the day when uh, we'll all be raised from the dead, receiving our resurrection bodies. And we'll stand before uh, God's glorious throne. And so if you talked about it in, this, in the kids' talk, go look in verse 12 where we see there's two types of books here, right? Verse 12, we see that God will open uh, his books, plural. Uh, this is God's record of everything we've done, good, bad, and ugly. Absolutely everything's in there. And uh, many people uh, in our world, perhaps people here, uh, think that... Uh, their record in these books is the only thing that will determine their eternal destiny. You've had this conversation. Perhaps you've thought this yourself. You just picture the scales and this book and you just hope that on this last day your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. That's how you think. If you believe in heaven at all, that's who you think goes to heaven. It's the people who have a good record. 
Right, of course, Sophie showed us in the kids' talk it won't work. Right? None of us have a record in these here books that is perfect or blameless, that it qualifies us to enter into the presence of a holy and glorious and perfect God. We're going to see him next week again in, in chapters 21 and 22. None of us qualify based on our record in these books. So it's good news for us that there's that other book, isn't it? The book of life. Uh, if you flicked back to Revelation 13, uh, you'd see that this book of life belongs to the Lamb who was slain. Right? It belongs to Christ. Uh, it's this book that is full. It has lists and lists of names of people who've trusted in Christ, that, that trusted that Christ is the ultimate Lamb of God, uh, the one who was uh, slain on the cross to pay the penalty for, for their sinful record, for your sinful record, that you might be clothed, that you might receive his perfect record. That's what this book is full of. This is the, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This incredible grace where we receive Christ's perfect record and he receives our sinful record. I, I don't want to assume. I, I wonder, is your name written in this Lamb's book of life? I hope it is. Because that is really what really matters. You see here in these verses, right? It's the only, our only hope, not just of escaping this torment of God's judgment. It's our only hope, not just of escaping, but of experiencing incredible joy in the new heavens and new earth that we're going to unpack next week. Right? It's this book of life that is absolutely critical, most important. Is your name in it by trusting in the Lamb who was slain? Of course, that doesn't mean those other books don't matter at all. Sometimes we do that. We're kind of like, oh, it's the book of life that matters. So forget about those other books. Well, that's not quite the case, actually. Because as Christians, this is going to sound a bit weird at first, right? I think, but as Christians, Christ will still judge us according to what we've done. Right? 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, for we must, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. But does that seem like? It seems like judged in accordance with what's in the books. Revelation 20, verse 12. Now, that's not what Paul's saying, because saying, a few verses after this, he talks about the fact that uh, we can be made righteous in God's sight because Christ, who was righteous, became sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God. He's not saying that. He's not saying our salvation is by works. He's very clear that our salvation is a gift from God by faith in Christ. But he is saying that if we have faith in Christ, right? if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, there will be evidence of it. There'll be evidence. What, what kind of evidence? Well, it could be all sorts of things. Right? I just want to uh, draw attention to one thing in particular. If you think back to the end of Christ's letters to the seven churches, uh, right back in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, uh, at the end of each of those letters, uh, he said the same thing. That's what he said. He said, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and, and he goes on to say, each time there's a promise for those who keep hearing and overcome, they'll share in eternal life, the blessings of heaven. Right? The point is that one of the primary evidences of having faith in Christ is that even in the face of the kind of opposition and, and suffering and injustice that's been described in the book of Revelation, in the face of all that, you keep listening to and trusting and obeying Christ's word. 
You keep having ears to hear the word of Christ. So really, that's what you want in your record book. And not that you're perfect, I'm not saying that. None of us are perfect. Not that you're perfect, but that you persevered in listening to Christ, in trusting his word, in obeying his word, even in the face of testing and suffering and persecution. And what you can be certain of from Revelation 2 and 3, from this passage, uh, is that if you keep doing that, if you keep persevering in trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be amongst the overcomers, those who are victorious, those who reign with Christ forever those who share in the blessings of the new heaven and new earth that we'll uh, unpack next week. Uh, Let me pray for us. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for all of your word. It's all useful, uh, breathed out by you uh, for our correction and rebuke and training in righteousness for our teaching. Uh, As we sit here, uh, tonight has perhaps been heavy going uh, and we may be kind of unclear uh, about exactly what use this has been. But Lord, I pray that you would remind us of these key truths, uh, that you are indeed sovereign, uh, that uh, Satan is subordinate, uh, that the gospel of our Lord Jesus will advance throughout the world, uh, that you, our Lord Jesus, is, uh, are faithful and true, and that one day you will return, and that you will judge everyone, and that we can be assured that uh, we can be in your book of life as we trust in your blood shed for us on the cross. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would keep giving us ears to hear your word, uh, that we would be among your sheep uh, who know your voice, uh, who hear your word, who trust your word and obey your word, uh, that we might share, uh, that we might be home at last, as we'll hear about next week, uh, where we'll see our God and Father face to face. Uh, We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.